Last time we finished up talking about embracing God's forgiveness. So when we think about forgiving one another as God and Christ has forgiven us, we need to clear up some misconceptions we might have about how God's forgiveness works toward us. Some of that is like forgive and forget. Some of that is, is God's forgiveness unconditional or is repentance involved? Yes, repentance is involved. No, God doesn't actually forget, um, but it changes how he relates to us. Um, so we were just kind of clearing those things up. And then last week we talked in particular about um, this idea of forgiving ourselves. And really what it's getting at is sometimes when we've sought God's forgiveness, we might feel something lingering there, like we're not quite forgiven for it. And sometimes the word handle we may use for that is, I just need to forgive myself. Like that could be what it feels like is happening or what we think is happening. And we talked about maybe five, I think it was five different categories that might be underlying that feeling or that pattern in our lives. And so we looked at that last week, and and I think those things are all really helpful to explore. Um, But those are in particular when we've maybe asked God forgiveness, maybe sought forgiveness from someone else, and it just feels like it's not working. Um, Those could be some things to explore. All of this is something to explore when it feels like that's what's happening. <laughs> um, and so we'll, we'll keep going on that. But then last week in particular, we talked about some aspects of forgiveness. And I'll just redraw this masterpiece. If uh, uh, So um, the one thing that I just think is so important to keep in mind is that when we come to a topic like forgiveness what we might do is we might just look at all the Bible verses that talk about forgiveness and leave out the rest of Scripture. That's a danger when we come to any topic. And so in any topic we talk about, we need to keep all of Scripture in mind because it all works together. Um, And I think the most important thing to keep in mind when we talk about forgiveness is it is a subset of this broader context that we're called to in every relationship. So you you could plug and play any two people here throughout the history of time. (laughs) And I think you could say, wait a minute, God calls them to relate in a certain way. What's that overarching command? And it would be the command to love. Um, But love is shaped by wisdom, right? Um, So it's wise love. Um, you could flip the order that way for grammatical purposes, but um, to wisely love. And I think part of what makes thinking about forgiveness difficult sometimes is um, I think we often have anemic or uh, incomplete views of what love is. I think a lot of times as Christians, we throw around the word love and it's immediately associated with just some form of like sheer niceness without truth being compatible with it, without a rebuke being a potential part of what love is. But also love of is always like part of what's always there is genuinely wanting and seeking the good of the other person, but it's what's actually good for this person at the state of the soul that they're in. And so that that's a multifaceted thing, right? So this context of wise love, but in the context of wise love, um, sin often happens between two people. And um, it's often complicated, like sin happens toward you and we respond in sinful ways, or 
Sin goes on like inside our hearts as we've been responded to in that way. The sin that's coming at us is ultimately coming from the other person's heart and all that's going on there. The complexity of how intently we feel this sin or how much harm or damage is done by it is shaped by a ton of things about who we are as a person, what we've experienced, our past experiences with that same type of sin or with that particular person. So there's a ton going on here, right? Um, but we're trying to think about what is wise love when that happens. And what we talked about is there's this call throughout Scripture to forgive another when they sin against us. But as we think about what forgiveness entails, it entails two people doing their part, ultimately, for, for forgiveness to happen. And that's where I think it's helpful to break out the understanding of it as transactional forgiveness and a heart of forgiveness. Transactional forgiveness takes place when the, offended, the offender realizes their sin, repents of their sin, and part of repentance, we'll talk about what that looks like more today, but part of that means understanding the hurt that they've caused, um, the wrong that they've done, and then seeking to turn from that and not do it again. Not that it will be perfectly not doing it, but they're seeking to not do it. So that's happening on the part of the offender, and then the offended person is granting that forgiveness and saying, in, in, in light of what you've done to me, and all that God has done for me, I am choosing to relate to you in an attitude of forgiveness, um, in a posture of forgiveness, in a debt cancellation for that wrong that was done. Now we'll talk about the reconciliation part of that because when this harm has occurred, what does this relationship look like even after transactional forgiveness has happened? Um, It doesn't go back to the way it was. And um, it's unwise for it to go back to the way it was. And that's what we'll talk about today in particular. That would be this process of reconciliation. And key to reconciliation is this question of trust, which again, I sound like a broken record, but we'll talk about that today. But the things that I want to know by way of review is we have transactional, transactional forgiveness, And by that, I just mean this. Both parties have been able to do their part in it. And we can, before God, thank him for the wonder of that taking place. Now, in a fallen world, transactional forgiveness is not always possible. Um, There can be all kinds of reasons. Some types of sin are essentially hit-and-run sins. The person comes into your life, does amazing harm, and vanishes. You may not even know who that person was who did those things. Um, Another possibility is that person dies before they seek your forgiveness. Another possibility that we'll talk about today is this person is unrepentant for what they're doing. If a person is unrepentant, I can't grant to them transactional forgiveness. But what can I do? Because the Bible does call us to be forgiving people, And that's where we can say, I can have a heart of forgiveness. And a heart of forgiveness is seeking to view that person as how God views them. And it's a posture that says, I long to forgive you. I'm praying to God that you'll repent and I'll have that opportunity, if that opportunity is possible. Um, And... I am praying against 
sinful postures towards you, like that of bitterness or things that would be harmful to my own soul. So I am seeking before God to have a ready and willing heart to forgive when transactionally that can happen, um, if it can happen. So I think that's helpful to keep in mind. And let's just, by way of review, hear what Brad Hambrick says when he talks about what unforgiveness and what forgiveness kind of look like, especially this, this heart posture here, because this is what we're on guard against and this is what we're um, praying for help in. Unforgiveness says some combination of, I want bad for you, I would be disappointed if good things happened to you, I want you to suffer in ways that are comparable with how you made me feel, You are a distraction from me enjoying a normal day. The world would feel morally out of order if good things happened to you. If those things are swirling around in our heart, those are things to be taking before the Lord and saying, those are indicators of my heart needs to grow in forgiveness toward this person. Um, So that's just helpful to realize. And all of those things invite further questions, right? Why are we feeling those things? Um, exploring that hurt, exploring what happened, um, all that's there. But what we're seeking to move toward, and it's a process, uh, it's not instantaneous, but forgiveness itself, the heart of forgiveness, says some combination of, I want good for you. Now, sometimes good is facing the consequences, coming to justice, like that is a part of that. But I want good for you. I want you to come to know God's forgiveness and freedom. But how does a person come to know God's forgiveness and freedom? By repenting and turning to him in those things. I want God to change you into the kind of person who would not do again what you did. Do you notice that trajectory for change? That's, again, repentance language. And then I want you to flourish. I want you to have a flourishing life in this freedom of forgiveness and repentance. I want the freedom to enjoy the good things in my life without comparing them to the good things in your life. So those are all things associated with a heart of forgiveness that we seek to, by God's grace, move toward. And then, um, as we're moving toward a heart of forgiveness that may result in transactional forgiveness, if the other person is willing, then we begin the process of reconciliation, this horizontal rebuilding of the relationship, and there's a whole process of regaining trust that, Again, that's what we're talking about today. So you've come to the right place. Um, One of the tools that we talked about last week in this process of rebuilding trust, um, a a handle for it is just the word boundaries. And I think what's helpful about it is to think of this. If your interaction with the other person has been a pattern of or even a one-time instance of Um, this is what you get when you interact with them. Um, You get, and so you get things like deceit. You get things like anger. You get things like um, condemnation, which is a form of reviling, which is, you know, all these kinds of things are coming at you when you interact with this person. The Bible speaks of how we are not to invite folly into our lives and in fact we're to um, stay from folly and foolish people to keep them at certain arm's length and so we can set up a boundary is not I am cutting off relationship with you per se although 
in its most extreme form, there can be very little relationship. But what it is saying is this is an invitation for you to wisely interact with me and avoid folly. And so what it's looking at is, you know what, when, when we've interacted via text, all these things are part of that text thread. And so I'm just saying, we're not interacting via text anymore. And in fact, when we've met face-to-face, these things are coming at me in ways that is not good for your soul or for my soul. So we need to have someone else there. Um, these can be types of boundaries or invitations to wisdom. And so what it's doing is it's not this wall that says no relationship, but as we interact with someone, let's say some of this is healthy. Well, I don't have room for it. But what it's doing is saying we're cutting off certain things like maybe texting or talking late at night or not um, meeting without a mediator. And it's saying these are some parameters that are inviting you to wisely interact with me and putting folly Um, making it harder for you to go down the path of folly and for me to respond foolishly as well or whatever that might be. Um, So those can be a a tool in that process. Um, Just a reminder, though, of how Scripture calls us to be wise in how we interact with other people who are pursuing a path of folly. Um, It calls us not to trust a treacherous person, a person who's saying one thing but then deceitfully bringing about destruction for their own benefit, right? Um, It tells us to consider how to respond to a fool. Sometimes we don't respond to a fool, and sometimes we do respond to make sure they know the truth. It says in Proverbs 22.10, when someone proves to be a scoffer, so again, a pattern of foolish behavior that's harming another person and a refusal to change about it. it. says driving them out may be necessary. Drive out a scoffer and strife will go out. Quarreling and abuse will cease. What is that also saying? That a scoffer cultivates quarreling and abuse and strife. So those can all be signs that someone's in that scoffer category. And then also, you know, um, Being angry and being wrathful in our society is sometimes viewed as like, well, cool, you're sticking it to the man or whatever. You're standing up for things. Proverbs warns against someone who this is a pattern of behavior or especially how they're responding to you or others. And it says, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. So scripture calls us to wisely limit our interactions with folly. And um, that all fits within a context of wise love. It is wisely loving for me, for the fool, to be limiting things that are provoking this folly. And so boundaries can be a way to do that. I think one helpful thing to say as the last thing by way of review is that this is a tool in rebuilding and especially um, situations where major harm has been done, in a situation of rebuilding trust. As a relationship moves down that trust spectrum and towards a healthier relationship, often boundaries are less and less needed. And what happens is the felt needs of the other person 
Like, you're both responding to each other's felt needs. And there's an opportunity to say, you know, when you said that, it, it, it really hurt me, and it would have been more helpful if you had said it this way, or when you don't do this for me, I find that really, like, I wonder if you care about me. And the other person saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I see that. Would it be helpful if I did this? And we're not having to necessarily erect a boundary. There's the healthy give and take of a relationship growing in wise love. Um, but when there's a consistent pattern where all this damage has been done, then these can be tools to, to move it in health. So those are things to think about. Okay, so that's review, which feels like a whole class in and of itself now that I say it. Okay, <laughs> how are we doing? Good, so we've got two things to cover today. Forgiveness and manipulative repentance, which is one thing, and then on the back of your sheet, forgiveness and trust. And so... Here's, um, <laughs> both of these could be like college courses on wisdom, right? Um, but here's what I think could be helpful. I want to lay out the categories. I want to give you the lay of the land of factors to consider. Um, in certain situations, it might be helpful right away, and you're like, oh, yep, I see. And that's the next step for me. That's where I am in this process. That's what's been lacking. Um, the way I think about this, though, more overall of how this is helpful as a church is in Discipleship Hour, we're laying out the material for you to ponder, and then probably the best way to implement this in your life is with a wise, trusted friend and someone who understands this well and talking to them about the situation. Like, here's what I find in my heart when I think about this other person and what they did, um, and can you help me walk through parsing that out? Because as you can tell, this, these things are so complicated. And just so you know, the elders would welcome, if any of you are stuck about a situation, we would love to talk to you. We also have many wise women in the church. So men and women who are wise in these things who would love to talk to you. And a, a, way, we could, um, a way you could avail yourself of that is if you come to one of us and say, I have a situation in my life I'd love to talk through. Our first thing will be, well, who's a good fit? Like, what would you be comfortable with? And then it's a situation where you could talk about the situation for the goal of understanding it better, how we can move down this path. So I can't solve every situation from here in 50 minutes, nor do I think that's how this is supposed to work. It's the beauty of walking that out together. Does that make sense? So I'm going to lay out some categories, and um, we'll go from there. Let's talk about forgiveness and manipulative repentance. And so what that's talking about is this situation. So, and again, anyhow, I don't need to give a thousand caveats every time. It's complicated. But um, if we think about this situation where you have the offender who has done something against you, and it's been hurtful and damaging, and then you've sought to confront that person, and it sounds like they're repentant or they're asking you to forgive them or to move beyond it in some way. But as it continues, you're saying, now, wait a minute, this doesn't, it doesn't seem like that worked or they got it or they were really repentant or that type of thing. When, so this can happen in the world, for sure. People can be like, oh, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. And then they haven't changed at all and it's just part of a ploy to keep self-preservation going on. It can happen a ton in the church because we as sinners come here with all these things in our hearts 
And then we're told about this idea of forgiveness that says, if I ask someone to forgive me, God says they have to do it. And so I'm going to use, like, that sounds pretty good. So this happens a ton in the church. So um, what is manipulation? Um, there's a general, if we just talk about like the English definition of it, there's a general use of manipulation that just means to manage or to utilize skillfully, right? So you're manipulating a spreadsheet <laughs> or um, manipulating clay into something. So you're just molding something, right? You're doing that. So that's kind of the generic sense of it. But the way it's most of, often used and the way we're using it here is in a negative sense. And so the dictionary says this, Manipulation is to, and I think I have this here, right? Yeah, to control or play upon by artful, unfair, or insidious means, especially to one's own advantage. So you're taking a situation and you're working it, and you're working it artfully sounds pretty cool, right? And it kind of walks down, wow, that was creative of how you turned that situation around. Um, But then also the unfair and the insidious aspects of that. Another definition says to change by artful or unfair means so as to serve one's purpose. So you're coming into the situation with an agenda. Um, Before we go on to the next definition there, think about this. Manipulative repentance then is using repentant-sounding words and actions to one's own advantage and to serve one's own purpose. Right? It's saying, oh, that's a cool tool. That can help me. When what is forgiveness actually supposed to be? This is a tool that I can use to help you because I have hurt you with my sin. Um, so true repentance is God-focused. I'm doing this for God and his glory and because he calls me to do that. And true repentance is other-focused. Manipulative repentance is self-focused, right? It's for maintaining something in your own situation. So Brad Hambrick says this, and I think this is so helpful. It's defining words and framing questions by verbiage or emotions. So sometimes it's with what you say, and sometimes it's with just how you respond in a situation. A person can say a lot just with their body language, right? How they respond to you. In such a way, I think this is so key, that makes a healthy response from the other person, this person, makes a healthy response from them seem selfish, mean, or unreasonable. It frames it up so if you actually act as a Christian toward me, I'm twisting you into thinking you're acting unchristian toward me. That's what's going on. (laughs) It's a very subtle thing, right? I mean, just as I describe it, it's just like, oh, man, this is so subtle. Um, and it's subtle because of the, the blindness of our own hearts, I think. When I say healthy responses, I think this is something that's so helpful to keep in mind when you're trying to discern, am I in a situation where I'm being manipulated or not? Um, or as you're working with someone else, are they being manipulated or not? To think through what would a healthy response be that a mature relationship would invite, right? And so in a healthy relationship here, I feel like there's so many arrows. Let me just streamline this a little here. In a healthy relationship, uh, you're inviting the other person's opinions and thoughts. In manipulation, 
giving your opinion or sharing your thought is somehow turned around on you as like, how dare you say that to me in some way. In a healthy relationship, speaking the truth to the other person of like, that was wrong when you did that, or that hurt me when you did that, or are you sure that's a good decision? All those things are part of healthy relationships. But what happens in manipulation is these healthy responses of voicing hurt or telling the truth, they're framed up as unreasonable and put back on the one saying those things. And so if a healthy response is being thrown back in your face, chances are there's something going on there. Um, Okay, there's a few things that are misconceptions about manipulation that we need to talk about. The first one, manipulation, the first misconception, so this is wrong. Manipulation is about method. Manipulation is not about method. And and here's what I mean by that. Manipulating is about why or how something is done. It's about the motive more than what is said or done. That's what makes it so tricky. Is a non-manipulative person could say the very same words and it's not wrong. But when it's done out of a heart of manipulation, those very same innocent-sounding words, um, like, well, have you thought about your own side of this? Obviously, that's a good Christian thing to think about, right? But if that's what's being thrown at you every time you're bringing a concern to someone else without it penetrating that person's heart, so it's about the motive. Um, Brad Hambrick says this, the goal of manipulation lies in the motive. For example, to resist change, to minimize responsibility, or to blame shift. Those can be motives that are happening with this. And it's effective at fooling the person being manipulated. Why? Because the phrases can also be used innocently. And so it's a, it's a heart motive thing, right? Second misconception is that manipulation requires forethought. This is something, yeah, this is something we just encounter all the time. I didn't mean to do it. That doesn't mean it wasn't manipulative. <laughs> and so let's, let's talk about that. Manipulation does not require careful planning or intellectual cunning. See, I think a lot of times when we think about manipulation happening within the context of Christian relationships, we think of like Ocean's Eleven or something. And like what what manipulation is, is this whole team of people behind the scenes crafting this plan of how to infiltrate the building and hack the system and get their own way. And it's this plan that's been thought out for years and now it's like step one, step two. Manipulation is often a gut response out of a sinful heart with no premeditation involved. And so it shouldn't be surprising to us that someone would say, well, well, that's not what I was trying to do or I, that wasn't my intention. Manipulation does not require careful planning or intellectual cunning. Many people who are using remorse to gain an advantage or avoid responsibility are not even aware of what they're doing. Their immediate goal, so what's going on inside them? Their immediate goal is to escape the discomfort of the moment. How do I escape the, escape the discomfort of the moment of, 
I've done something to hurt you, I put it back on you. I take it off of me. And it's a gut reaction often. This desire to escape shapes the way they define words and frame questions, right? So it's this heart impulse to get out of the discomfort of being in the wrong. And hey, here's a good tool, especially for Christians to use. I can say these phrases that I know aren't bad phrases that I've heard elders say. And boom, now it's on you and I'm okay. And that can happen so quickly. And then part of why we don't even realize it's happening so often is because that becomes a pattern in life, right? And you can trace it a lot of times all the way back to childhood. I'm just uncomfortable because I got in trouble. I learned a way to take the focus off of me, put it on someone else. That seems to work. I live another day, one less time being grounded or spanked. This seems to be working. And you just keep that pattern going, right? And so without even thinking about it. So that's helping to understand some of what's going on there, all right? So what I want to move then into is um, this, this section, the seven, seven statements, and notice how it's worded, that may point to manipulative repentance. That may point to manipulative repentance. And so, disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. Anytime the, th- the thing that we're seeking to get at is a heart thing, versus merely an external thing. So so some things are clearly external, right? Like you punch someone in the face. Okay, we, we've got some stuff to work with right there. Um, when it's something more subtle, that motive is what determines whether these words are manipulative words or word, words that heal. When it's that subtle, then then the way we're going to be able to assess it is going to be by discerning patterns over time. Um, not just looking for one instance. Chris Moles talks about this dynamic as if, if you're watching a train going through the hills. And we used to live up in the high desert, and so you go up through the Cajon Pass, and it's, you know, all these hills. And then what blew my mind is this train, <laughs> you know, you're stuck in traffic, but then you watch this little train going chugga, 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 but winding its way through the hills. And what happens is you see like three cars at a time. Oh, it's a train this big, right? Or, oh, it has... But as you start to, over time, watch that train the whole way, you realize that train's actually two miles long. <laughs> it's really long. It has all these cars on it. This is what that train is. But it takes time of watching the train go through the hills until you can put that whole picture together in your mind. That's how things like manipulation work, and especially when it comes to, hey, here are seven phrases. Um, one time this being said First of all, it may not have even been manipulation. These things can be used in an okay way in a healthy relationship. But as you see a pattern of this happening over time, um, and that's why it's so important to be talking to someone else about this who can see it um, more clearly as well. So, um, also, second disclaimer. Any examples I give in this, I have really tried to think through my examples to make sure none are about a particular situation that someone's talked to me about in the last whatever and happens to be sitting here or something. Like, just know I have, that's been my goal. And so if anything comes out that you're like, is he talking about me? Just know it's not intentional. Uh, I'm trying not to. And if it's hurtful, please come talk to me about it. It'll help me grow. And uh, that's not what I want to be doing. So just know if, if that pops up in your head of, 
was he listening to my phone call? Um, yes, but no, I'm just kidding. We, uh, you don't know that elders have tracking devices? Uh, no, and that's not the intent, and I'm not trying to manipulate you. Uh, okay, but time will tell. Okay, statement number one. I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. This gets said a lot among Christians. Someone does something to us, I know I'm not perfect, right? With each of these, I want to say what it's communicating. Brad Hambrick draws this out really well. Oh, one other thing. I'm going to be saying a lot of words, but this can be found. Yeah, see footnote three. Um, This is a blog by Brad Hambrick that unpacks all seven of these things. So you can just sit and listen and just jot down any key things, but you can just go home and look that up and it's all there or it's in his book. Okay, so just I just say that to put you at ease. I know I'm not perfect. What does that communicate? Your expectations that I respond decently by speaking kindly, by fulfilling my promises, by being honest about my schedule. Your expectations that I do that are unreasonable. You're expecting me to be perfect, and I know I'm not perfect. Do you see how it puts it on the other person? Um, So we'll just put this arrow back up here. But it's saying you're the one who's expecting perfection and who's expecting um, too much of me. Um, I would have to be perfect in order to not be critiqued by you. That's what it's kind of saying to the other person. And then, but in reality, forgiveness doesn't require that the other person doesn't sin. This is one thing we run into a lot when someone is being confronted with a pattern of behavior is they'll say, well, if I just do this once, like I'm not going to be perfect and it seems like that's going to throw the whole thing out, right? That's not what any of us is looking for when we're talking about forgiveness. What we're looking for is it requires that they admit to their sin and commit to growing. Not that they somehow are perfect, but often the perfection gets held out and not admitting it and not growing. (laughs) Um, So I know I'm not perfect can be one thing. Second, I've never pretended to be someone I'm not. What that communicates is you knew who I was when we started this relationship, so you are being unfair by expecting me to be decent. That's really what that's communicating. It's confusing genuineness and authenticity, which are good things, with righteousness and holiness. Being genuine about being a jerk isn't the same as being righteous or holy, right? It's nice you're being genuine about that. But think about where this logic goes. According to this logic, they could be horrible people. I mean, they could go murder someone and then it's your fault, like if you at all bring it up, because you knew who they were when you got into this. It's, it's never on them, according to this logic. So um, I've never pretended to be someone I've not, I'm not. Third, you are bringing up stuff from the past. Most situations that I've been privy to that are related to manipulative repentance attack the other person's forgiveness. You are not forgiving me. You are bringing up stuff from the past. Um, What this communicates is we can only talk about events and typically recent events, and we can't talk about patterns of behaviors. 
um, it's refusing to see the pattern demands. Um, in this refusal to see the pattern or to let us look at the pattern, what it demands is that we respond to every instance as a first occurrence. Think about that in life for a minute. Um, a person stole from you. You forgive them. Does that mean you're supposed to respond to this as a first occurrence and just be naive about your money? Like, go right back to access to my QuickBooks? Like, that, that would be folly, right? If forgiveness meant this happens and bloop, this is part of the problem with forgive and forget being a catchphrase for what forgiveness is because it's not about forgetting as much as it's about changing how I relate to the person and putting their sin behind me but still not being foolish in how I respond to them, right? And so um, it would be unwise for what the person did not to affect our trust. Um, If a person lies to us and we just go right back to acting like they never lied, And each time they do it, especially we're 10 times down the road, oh, I lied again. I'm sorry, please forgive me. It would be foolish to be like, I'm just going to treat you like nothing happened. Part of what Scripture shows us is also the way we use our words can inflict, inflict huge harm, right? Proverbs 12, 18. Rash words are like the thrusts of a sword but a wise tongue brings healing. And so think about the situation that this is happening. If the person is only using their words to hurt us, which is still very significant, what has happened is this. I have encountered you in a situation, and you have shown me that when you are in that situation, where whether I bring truth to you or critique or you're just stressed from work, you know what you do? You pick up swords and you run them into me. And then you seek my forgiveness which I grant to you, but I'm going to be careful about being in a room with you when you're stressed about work because I still have stitches because thankfully the doctors were able to like save my life. That helps us frame up what's going on here when it says you're just bringing up stuff from the past. I mean, blood is still running down our sides from the way the person last interacted with us. And so a humble person seeking forgiveness in a non-manipulative way is please forgive me for the harm that I caused to you and I am going to put my swords in a box. (laughs) We are going to bring barriers there that I am going to seek to be careful so that I don't run you through again. It reminds me of like Wolverine in that scene where he wakes from the dream and um, the sword, his, anyhow, that's taking me off, but it's saying like, whoa, need to change how I sleep because sharp things come out of my hands when I'm in this situation. Um, Not, how dare you bring up something from the past. Um, So that's what's going on. Okay, number four. You know that I'm not the kind of person who would do that. That's not what I meant. This communicates your experience of me is not an accurate description of reality. You don't understand what went down. My self-perception and my intentions are more accurate than your experience. Um, 
Here's an example. Someone gets confronted about stalking, okay? And the stalker says this, you know I wouldn't do that. I was just trying to make sure you were safe. I was worried about you. I'm sorry if it made you uncomfortable. Do you see what's happening here? The self-perception of the offender, I just care about your safety, completely overrides the experience of the other person um, and how the situation was interpreted. What's the problem with that? The problem that we should understand really well as Christians is our own self-perceptions are often the most flawed things in the room, (laughs) often the most inaccurate gauge of what really happened. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful and exceedingly wicked. Who can know it? My own heart, by nature, according to the flesh, now the spirit is helping, but it is deceitful. The very nature of deceit means I don't even know when it's off. That's part of what scripture is calling us to see. So much so, that's not just a Jeremiah 17 thing, talking about unbelievers out there, which it isn't even in the context, But Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.4, he says, I don't even judge myself. I entrust that to the Lord because I know my judgment could be off. (laughs) I'm doing the best before the Lord and seeking to search my own heart. But at the end of the day, I don't even trust my own assessment of myself. Only the Lord can judge the secret things of the heart. So what does that do? That makes us humble enough to say, even if that's not what I self-consciously premeditated to do to you, that very well might have come out of my heart. And that did that to you, and I need to move toward you in love and seek in repentance and seeking your forgiveness. Not it being thrown back on the person being like, I would never do something like that. Um, Number five, I said I was sorry. What more do you want from me? If they're really spiritual, they'll say, I sought your forgiveness. What more do you want from me? (laughs) But um, just saying I was sorry is, is there too. But what does that communicate? If anything more than my words, saying the phrase I'm sorry or saying please forgive me, is required in response to my actions, then you are mean, unforgiving, weak, or hyper emotional. It's just your emotions doing that, but I've already done that. Like these things, which these are healthy responses, right? All of those uh, things are, are not necessarily unhealth. Um, but it's saying anything more required of me than my words puts it back on you. And notice the first, uh, notice the pronouns that are happening here. I said I was sorry. What more do you want from me? First person pronouns, I should be used in the active ownership part of repentance. However, in the description of the impact and the aftermath of our sin, healthy repentance focuses more on the disruption we caused in the other person's life. For instance, healthy repentance sounds like I, first person pronoun, realized when and then described the sin accurately and non-defensively, yelled at you in anger, Betrayed your trust by deceitfully concealing where I was. It was wrong, owning that sin, 
and hurt you by, and then describe the effects it's had on the other person. That's, that's what it's supposed to look like, not, I said I was sorry, what's your problem by still being hurt by this? Number six, there are a lot of people or couples who have it much worse than you or we do. Uh, This communicates you should feel bad for complaining when the situation was not as bad as it could have been. Um, Being a Christian adds an interesting layer to the things that we experience, doesn't it? Because we know other people in the church are hurting and going through hard things. And what we often are tempted to think is, this harm or hurt that has come to me I know people have been through way more, so I should just get over it. That's not what the Bible says, and that's definitely not what the offender should be putting back on you. Um, What this is doing is saying it could have been worse, which we can always think of something that could have been worse, right? means it's not bad enough to mention, and it's not bad enough to deal with before God. And it makes suffering a competitive sport in which only those who have suffered the worst are allowed to speak. Think about it. Is this to be the measure of our Christian growth or holiness? There are a lot of people who are worse than me. (laughs) So I'm holy enough, I guess, or I'm Christ-like enough. Like, No, that doesn't work in any other realm of the Christian life, but somehow it's supposed to work when we're offending someone else or someone else is hurting us. And then number seven, I promise I will do better without agreement on the problem or the concrete examples. So this is often happening at the end of a bunch of these things being said, and the person's trying to bring it to an end being like, I I promise I'll do better. (laughs) Can we just, let's just leave it looking forward, not go into all that past stuff. That communicates that even though I minimize and disagree with you about the past, what they did, and the present, what needs to happen here right now, you should trust me when I say that things will be better in the future. (laughs) I've shown no trustworthiness with past or present, but hey, the future, we're good. Let's just look to that. Um, Instead, uh, repentance would be truthfully and honestly making commitments to seek to do better. Not grandiose promises, but realistic, concrete steps. I know what happened when I did this to you. I am going to put accountability software on my computer and talk to one of the elders about this. I know what that did to you, and I'm so thankful you forgave me, and so I'm turning on location tracking on my phone. You have free access to all our financials. Like, I, I'm not using cash anymore. Every, I'll run every transaction through this credit card. Like, those are things that show I'm trying to change, not I promise I'll do better and let's just move on. Um, So, those are the seven things. As you can tell from the back of the sheet, we've hardly got anything left to cover. That's a joke. I'm manipulating you. (laughs) Sorry, shouldn't joke about that. Um, So, those are things to be aware of that I think if you're hearing those things said to you, it would be wise to talk to someone about it. If you are saying those things often, you need to talk to somebody about it. 
um, because you may be very blinded by what's actually going on in your heart. And the beauty is the gospel can help you. Um, It helps all of us as we all are tempted to say these things and they sometimes slip out and sometimes we rely on them. I want to try and talk about trust. Um, And maybe I'll, anyhow, I'll leave the, let me just talk. Second, forgiveness and trust. So when forgiveness takes place, this person sees what they did. They say, please forgive me. And we say, I forgive you. And I'm going to try and view you now as God views me in Christ. And I want to reestablish a relationship, but that's a process. Um, We often have a sense of guilt when restoration is not immediate. Another way of saying that is we often feel guilty when it's not just back to the way everything was before. And somehow we as the hurt party can feel guilt about that, like we're doing something wrong. Um, This may come out in saying something like, I feel bad for not trusting so-and-so after they did the offense, lied to me, um, lost their temper. I, I feel bad that it feels like something's off, right? This often comes from a misunderstanding of trust. We think that's a problem with forgiveness. That's most often a problem with what's happening on the trust rebuilding spectrum. And I I want to address one other thing. As Christians, we come to this knowing that forgiveness is this amazing injection of gospel change into a situation. Huge potential for God-glorifying change in both parties and just um, something that angels rejoice over. And since, since we know that, I think sometimes when we come to it and it's happened, we think that this should happen immediately and that's how God works. You could say it like this, as I've been thinking about it. We think that with forgiveness, the way God will then work is miraculously rather than he will work supernaturally. What I mean by that is this. Think about it in terms of physical healing. Um, something uh, like you're in a car accident and your, your arm is shattered, right? And we pray for healing and how does that often happen? that through multiple surgeries and physical therapy, God restores use of your arm, and that's, that's a wonderful thing, and we thank and praise God for that. God sometimes miraculously works in such a way that that arm heals way quicker than that usual timetable. And we'd say that's, that's miraculous intervention, right? Relationships and the way we use our words are much more akin to physical healing than not but we usually put them in the category, since it's just words, it's miraculous. It just, they disappear. They don't. And that healing is just as much a process. And so when we say, hey, there needs to be a process of rebuilding trust and a process of growing in reconciliation, we're not saying God's not involved. We are saying this will 100% be dependent upon the work of the Spirit in my heart to forgive you and in your heart to truly change. Because it's, it's supernatural anytime that happens. It's completely counter to the flesh. But we're not naive thinking it will be miraculous like this. Sometimes it happens. And we see that person radically change and it holds the test of time. But normally, it's through a process of rebuilding trust and healing the relationship. And it's not unchristian to expect that. It's actually wise to expect that. It's actually foolish 
to act like it will always be miraculous. Does that make sense? And then I think it makes a lot more sense when we just consider this, this process. And let me just say this. Let's just talk about trust as a proportional virtue. I think we can fit this in. I know it's probably been a lot, but this will give you something to just ponder this next week. An absolute virtue is something more akin to honesty. When we teach our kids to be honest or when we've been taught to be honest, is it a good thing to be like 70% honest? Ah, like 30% lie is fine. That's great. No, honesty is like an all or nothing thing, right? And apart from extreme situations in wartime and hiding Jews in our basement, the being honest is the right thing, even though it may require varying levels of tact. But being 100% honest is what we are shooting for. But just saying, how do we wisely do it? Trust is not an absolute virtue. Trust is a proportional virtue. So what that means is this. Um, It is good and it is wise to trust someone who is trustworthy. It is foolish to trust someone more than they are trustworthy. That's different than honesty where 100% is what you're shooting for. So the way I think about it is this. um, And boy, this would be fun, I think, if we all just got little like uh, paper plates and held them to our heads with popsicle sticks with numbers on them. But we'll just do it this way instead. Imagine that you could see in another person a trust meter, like how trustworthy they were. How often do they keep their word? How often are they honest? And they're walking around, and your friend is pretty good. Like, they're a 75% trustworthy person. Like, sometimes they don't show up. Um, You know, sometimes they've hurt you when you've told them a secret. But most of it, like three out of four times. So trust as a proportional virtue says this. It is wise to trust them in a 65 to 80% trust range. Right? It's wise to treat them that way. To tell them, most of your secrets. It's kind of foolish to tell them all of your secrets, though, because especially if it's a juicy one, you don't know what's going to happen. And so what that means is this. It's actually unwise not to trust them at all or to trust them below 65%. They've demonstrated themselves to be trustworthy. And if we're holding back everything, That's on us in some way, like that's not wise. But this is the part we often fail to understand. It's also foolish to trust them 100% or 95% and to tell them that thing that you know and that if they know, then it hurts not only you but other people. It's actually unwise when they have, you know, a few times they haven't and we're just not there yet. That's what it means about trust being a proportional virtue. We err on the side of being too skeptical and we can err on the side of being naive or foolish if we're entrusting too much. Um, and so Jesus was truly wise in how he related to everyone in their trustworthiness. And we see him withholding certain things from those who weren't trustworthy, not entrusting himself to certain people, but then also entrusting them with other things. Jesus did that perfectly um, we will seek to walk in wise trust that way. All right, do I have time for an example and then close, or do I close now? Let's do the example, 
And then we'll leave off on elements of wise trust because you'll hear them in this example and I'm just reading it. So here we go. We're landing the plane with this. This is from Brad Hambrick. This is not my example. Imagine you have an adult child who struggles with alcohol addiction. They are willing to admit admit that it's a problem and can attend a support group. But they resist being transparent about their schedule. They insist on carrying cash and they keep in touch with several close drinking buddies. For the purposes of this discussion, we'll say you forgave them for years of lying about their addictive habits and the defaming things they said about you while they were creating a drunken scene at the family reunion. So that part has been forgiven, which that's huge. But how much do you trust them? Absolute or all-or-nothing trust which isn't wise, would either say that I forgave them and so now I have to treat them like everything's fine. Or it would say, I'm not going to forgive them because they're not doing everything right yet. Right? The concept of proportional trust allows us to ask better questions. You see, true transactional forgiveness can be granted for what was said at the family reunion, for years of lying and hiding things from you, squandering your money, perhaps, like those things. But the concept of proportional trust allows us to ask better questions. Trust is no longer all or nothing. What responses of trust would affirm the good steps they are willing to take? What responses of trust would falsely affirm that their current efforts are adequate? You see, that's where when we extend too much trust, we're shortchanging what God's trying to do in their heart by giving this perception that, hey, everything's fine and it can all go back to where it is when actually there are things that aren't right. Based on the info, it would be too soon to force the adult child to move out and it would be naive to allow them to borrow money. Now, Brad Hambrick does say each family has to make their own choices and like, There are a ton of other factors, so don't hear this as, if it sounds vaguely familiar, he's saying, this is what you have to do. He's just saying, hey, with this example, here's the way we walk the way of trust. And this is what it would sound like. And and it's, it's these elements of wise trust, but put to a conversation. It would be something like this. We're proud of you for being willing to admit you've had a problem with drinking. That takes courage and humility. We appreciate how you've been engaging in recovery. We want to encourage you to continue with that. That's why we're happy to have you at home and provide room and board. If you stay engaged with recovery, you don't have to worry about that changing. So you see that whole affirmation of what's there. But you've chosen not to be open about your schedule. You've insisted on carrying, carrying cash so we don't know how you spend your money. And you hang out with friends who have encouraged your drinking. Giving you additional money would be more trust than the quality of your current choices warrants. We want to trust you more. We believe, but we believe it's best for everyone if our trust is proportional to your commitment to change. We love you. That's why we're not going to loan you money at this time. You see how it's navigating? You know, this would be more like a a 30% at the most here. But It's seeking to navigate that proportional thing and how that's a response and a process that has a way forward. It also has a way backward, not about forgiveness, but about the relationship and how that works out. So I have broken your trust by going over time. Um, So I'll pray and then if you think it's a sin, I can seek your forgiveness afterwards. 
Our Father in heaven, we throw ourselves upon your mercy and we ask for help. We are amazed at how trustworthy you are and how you forgive us so freely. We pray that you would make us wise. Give us the mind of Christ. By your spirit, help us to absorb what your word says about how to wisely love one another. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.